Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. So how's your week been, dear? It's been okay. Yeah? Yeah. Get up to anything new? Well, you were there. <laughs> I know that this is all a big artifice to, to introduce <laughs> the topic of the week. So why don't you just do that instead? Okay. When I picked our prompt. Yes. I knew this was going to be our 90th episode. And it is. Hooray. I was like, okay, I want to do something about the 90s. Mm-hmm. Did not know what 90s thing it was going to be. No. Earlier this week, we went to the Surgical Science Museum, finally, here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I saw my inspiration. Lance Bass. You know, he is my inspiration, <laughs> but not this time. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I decided that we are going to talk about something that happened in 1895. Ah, the gay 90s. Yes. Uh, we're we're going to talk about x-rays. All right. Did not sound very excited about that. All right. Grover Cleveland is president. For now. <laughs> Did you have plans against Grover Cleveland? Wait, isn't he the one that got shot? <laughs> he gets shot, right? Real quick, that was actually President McKinley. We did a whole episode about it. We know. Sorry. The, the Dreyfus affair is kicking off. Queen Victoria sits upon the throne. Okay, yeah. 1895. Yep. That is when x-rays were discovered. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the miracle of medicine, as it, you know let doctors and people see, like, inside bodies for the first time without, like, possibly killing people by opening them up. It's effective. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to be talking about, like, x-ray images. Mm -hmm. um, but important thing to know is that sometimes x-rays also means, like, the rays when we're talking here. You mm -hmm. know, not just the images that we know. Before they were officially discovered mm -hmm. for good like 100 years prior, uh, x-rays were unknowingly being produced. I mean, yeah, it's just a, a band of the electromagnetic spectrum. They're, they're happening all the time. Yes. The sun is emitting x-rays. Well, I meant more like people were doing a lot of experiments, mm -hmm. and they were probably producing them looking back. They just didn't know that's what it was. Ah, okay. And no one, like, identified it. Right. Uh, so the earliest experiment that is believed to have unknowingly produced x-rays uh, was done by William Morgan. Uh, he is actually considered to be the father of modern actuarial science. Uh-huh. Yes. So I bet he was getting all the ladies. Oh, yeah. And telling them just when they would die. <laughs> uh, so in 1785, uh, he presented a paper describing effects of uh, passing elect electrical currents through a partially evacuated uh, glass tube, uh, and it produced a glow. He didn't know what that glow was. <laughs> it was probably x-rays. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, and then what he did was explored by others even more, but they never found out that like this was x-rays. They never identified it. Others who explored it was uh, Humphrey Davy, who was a chemist and inventor who isolated several elements uh, and invented the new field of electrochemistry. Ooh. Uh, he also experimented with nitric oxide and was the one that gave it its nickname, laughing gas. 
We, we learned a lot about laughing gas at that visit, too. Yeah, yeah, a lot about laughing gas parties. Apparently, anesthesia was invented by a bunch of doctors going to weird drug parties. And having fun. And thinking, you know, this is probably good for, like, surgery and stuff. Well, like, Davey's, like, one of those people. He was like, you know what? I'm just going to try this out on myself a lot. Oh, it makes me feel really good and laughs. Oh, you cool. know, for science, wink, wink. Uh-huh, yep. Yeah, that's kind of a trend in history of doctors being like, well, <laughs> let me just try this on myself. Mm-hmm. Might be good, might be bad, might be good. In 1889, uh, Ivan Pooley published a paper on how a sealed photographic plate became dark when exposed to a just discharge from the tube. Careful about your discharge from your tubes, people. But he didn't know what it was. Yeah. Just it was a thing that happened. Uh, and then Hermann von Helmholtz formulated a mathematical equation and a theory for x-rays before they were discovered. But he never actually, like, worked with them. Mm-hmm. Or was exp- he was just like, I feel like this is a thing. And I think this is what it would be. If, if there was something beyond uh, ultraviolet light, this, this math would describe it. Yes. Turns out there is such a thing. Yes. Okay. Uh, and in 1894, uh, Tesla uh, noticed damages to film in his lab that seemed to be connected with Crookes uh, tube experiments, um, which after the official discovery, he was like, oh, that's what that was. Let me make my own x-ray images, too. This kind of light, it, it acts like light on photographic plates, but it goes through things, not like light. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I yeah. mean... Just saying it like that. It's really cool. Uh, so the actual discovery was made by Wilhelm Wilhelm Röntgen. Uh, he was born March 27th, 1845, uh, to a Dutch mother and German merchant father. Uh, at, when he was like three, they moved to Holland. Um, that sounds like the beginning of a racist joke that American wouldn't get. Like, it, you could say something very rude and only Europeans would know what stereotypes you're playing at. So anyways, he attended high school there uh, and was expelled in 1865 when a teacher thought he made a caricature, a caricature of him. But it wasn't him. He didn't do it. Also, it was a completely photorealistic likeness. The dude just looked like that. <laughs> yes. Um, so since he was kicked out of school, he didn't have a diploma. And because of that, he could not attend university in the Netherlands except as a visitor. So it, like, wouldn't count. Mm-hmm. But he could attend in Zurich, so he moved there to attend the Federal Polytechnic Institute, and he began studying mechanical engineering and went on to get his uh, PhD in 1869. So you don't need a diploma. Yeah. If your parents ever ask you what you plan to do after dropping out of high school, just say, I plan to attend the Polytechnic Institute in Zurich and discover x-rays. There you go. They will respond, that's already been done, it won't count for anything, and win the argument. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, in 1869, he got engaged to uh, his his future wife, Anna, uh, but they didn't get married for three years. Totally Uh, normal and fine. Yes. Okay. Uh, (laughs) The reason... I wanted to put that out there. The reason, though, back then, (laughs) that was like, oh, that's weird... Uh, she was six years older than him, and his father did not approve of her age or her background. He was like, no, she is too far below you. His his family cut him off for marrying her. Mm-hmm. And he was like, whatever. 
got a good <laughs> wife. Uh, and together they raised one child. It was actually Anna's niece um, her, after her brother died in 1887. Uh, so on November 8th, 1895, uh, he was in his laboratory at the University of okay at the University of Wurzburg uh, and accidentally discovered X-rays will experience with Leonard tubes and Crooks tubes. Lots of tubes with names. Everybody had their own tubes back then. Yep. It was a whole thing. You know, you make a tube, you name it after yourself. What would your tube do if you had a tube? If I had a tube? Yeah. Like if it could do anything? Yeah. What What does your tube do? Vaporizes people. Yeah? Yep. I just surf through my tubes. Oh, they call that a tube? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> No, I'm I'm big into action sports and that sweet ocean life, <laughs> as you well know. They're they're my dual passions. Yes, yes. Def that's me. That's definitely you. I have a collection of GoPros that I use for for different tasks. Yes. I have my mountain biking GoPro. I have my skydiving GoPro. That's why you're so into your Gundam is because you strap little baby GoPros <laughs> on them. Yeah. And just like wear them in little like Gundam harnesses on you when you go surfing. Uh, so anyways, our, our buddy, uh, Willem here, mm -hmm. William here, uh, was looking, he, he was looking at what was being generated, uh, during the discharge in these tubes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, using electrical current, there's a discharge, what's going on? Let me, let me do lots of experiments and keep doing this. I do like that it meant these people inventing tubes had no idea what they made. It does something. It has my name now. You figure it out. Well, they're like, it can do some things. We know what some of these things are. But if you do different stuff to it, it does other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so he was experimenting on a Leonard tube. Um, and there was like a, a thin aluminum window that had been added to permit the cathode rays to exit. Uh, but then there was a cardboard covering that he had added as well. And the cardboard allowed... Uh, you know, prevented light from escaping. So the, the cardboard prevented the light from escaping, mm -hmm. but he observed that the invisible ray still caused, like, a fluorescent effect on a small cardboard screen uh, that was outside of there. Um, the screen had been painted with barium platinocyanide uh, and, as I said, was very close by. And he was like, oh, that's, like, weird. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> and he was like, hmm, I wonder if this would happen, like, if I did it in the other tube. The Crooks tube. Yes, because it was, like, a little thicker glass. And he was like, I wonder if, like, that ray would still, like, escape. Yeah. So he's seeing the effect of uh, uh, the light shining out, but he's blocked the light shining out. Yes. What the heck is going on? What's going on? Wh what is shining out then? And so, like, he went and, like, had tea or something, <laughs> lunch. I, like, came back later and I was like, okay, let me try this with this other tube. Mm -hmm. And he, like, got it all set up and, like, made the cardboard and, like, put it on. And he's like, okay, I'm going to, like, turn out the light to make sure no light's escaping. And then he's like, wait, there's a glow over there on the other side of the room. What's whoa, that? Whoa. And so apparently he, like, struck a few matches so that way he could, like, keep the light out but try to, like, figure out, like, what's this glow coming from? Uh, and it was the cardboard mm -hmm. that he had, like, set to the side and not actually set up yet. This coated cardboard. Yes. That was farther away and glowing, even though he was using a bigger tube. Mm -hmm. This led to him spending weeks 
<laughs> doing more uh, experiments and investigating what was going on. Uh, and he was like, okay, this is some type of new ray I found. I don't know what it is, so I'm going to call it an X-ray. Because X means unknown, and I don't know what it is. So it's an X-ray. Everybody else is naming things after themselves. It could have been the Rontgen ray. Okay, so there, in parts of the world, that's actually what they call it. Really? And they also call it the Rontgen like, radiation. So we just stuck with the placeholder? <laughs> Well, and apparently that is what, like, once he announced his discovery, it's what his colleagues wanted him to call it. Mm -hmm. But he was like, nah. (laughs) Through, like, his history and what he's done, he was very against, like, taking that type of, like, credit. Mm -hmm. Later, they would try to, like, give him a title of, like, lower nobility. And he was like, (laughs) no. Oh, I'm good. Then then my wife would be far, far too low class for me. My, my family would hate that. Yeah. So in other parts of the world, they are not called x-rays. But in some parts of the world, including here, they're x-rays. Rontgen radiation gets a shout out in uh, a Doctor Who episode. Yeah. Uh, Smith and Jones, the first episode of series three. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting fact about <laughs> about it. But he he wasn't into it. So all you people calling it Ronkin Rays, he was like, "No, don't do that." I don't know what we're gonna call it, but not that. <laughs> so, right now, we'll just use X Rays. So really, over the last hundred twenty five years, yeah, we've been looking for the name. <laughs> we haven't found it yet. So at one point during his experiments Mm -hmm. uh he was looking into the ability of different materials to stop the race well yes otherwise they may conquer the earth yes uh and this is when he saw the first uh radiographic image uh it was his own flickering skeleton on a barium plantanocyanide screen how much would that freak you out? If I was just like, let me just do that. Whoa, Whoa. that's my hand. <laughs> what the hell? I would throw all of my tubes out of the window because <laughs> the devil is inside them. I've been shown an image of my own mortality. No, what he did was like, well, dang, I'm not going to tell anyone about this for a while because I need to make sure what's going on is real and right. <laughs> And so about six weeks after the discovery, uh, he took um, one of the most famous x-rays ever, Mm -hmm. uh, which was going around on the internet a while ago, actually. Yeah. And it was his wife's hand while wearing uh, her wedding ring. Now, the stories conflict. Some say that she was kind of unimpressed, and others say that she said that she saw her death. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to go with that. Thank you, Anna Ronkin. I think it kind of depends on how much he had already shown her. Yeah. If she was like, hey, hey, come look at this. Look at my hand. Do you see it? <laughs> she's not. She's going to be like, okay, yes, you've been doing this for like weeks. I have not seen you. <laughs> we are married in case you forgot. Yes, it's another skeleton. Why aren't you here raising our daughter, who is my niece? But... If this was the first time she was seeing it, I could totally see that she would say, I saw my death. Mm -hmm. Just depends. So on December 28th, uh, 1895, he published a paper titled On a New Kind of Race, 
On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a vision of my own death. Uh, And he also sent letters to physicians he knew around Europe um, because he was like, whoa, going to change the medical field. Yeah, yeah. They better know about this. Want to give them a heads up. That is like the first idea that I suppose would come to mind. And it's the thing they're used the most for now. Yes. At, at least in public consciousness. Yeah, in you, public you may... consciousness. They're used for a lot of other things, too. We don't really get I'm into sure, that. I'm sure. We focus more on the medical. Mm-hmm. Um, but their x-rays are used for a lot of things. So the discovery what became a sensation. It's estimated that in 1896, there were like 49 essays and uh, about 1,050 articles published on the subject. Mm-hmm. Though it's thought that that number is actually really off because <laughs> the Science Magazine uh, had 23 articles alone that year on x-rays. Mm-hmm. So everyone was talking about it. Yeah. It was taking the world by storm. And again, remember, he published this on December 28th. On January 11th, the first clinical x-ray was done. Two weeks. Yes. Uh, And it was done by John Hall Edwards. Uh, He radiographed the hand of an associate and saw that there was like a needle beneath the skin. I feel like he could have just asked. Yeah, probably. Uh, And then a month later, on February 14th, uh, the first x-ray in a surgical operation was used. Mm -hmm. Edwards would actually be the first person to x-ray a human spine, which is, I guess, cool. It is pretty cool. And he would go on to actually be made the first surgeon radiographer at the General Hospital in Birmingham and uh, would become the first military radiographer in 1900. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first dental x-rays were taken uh, that year as well uh, by Frederick Otto Wolkoff. He took an ordinary photographic glass plate and wrapped it in a rubber dam and held it between his between his teeth and tongue for a 25-minute exposure. I guess he didn't have a lot of patience. I don't know. Or did he have a lot of patience? To... Whoa. Yeah. You're blowing my mind with these homophones. Yeah. Uh, so he and uh, Fritz Geisel would go on to open the first dental rot... Oh. I, I... Why don't you just say that one for me? Uh, the first dental rontgenological lab? Yes, there in, we go. In 1896? Yeah, because there's no way that one was coming out of my mouth. That's probably why we stick with radiography and, and x-ray. X-ray! Yeah. So easy. Let's. I don't understand what other parts of the world are doing with that one. People were taken to this. They're like, yes, let's use it. This is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, a daughter of one of the early adapters uh, said that it wasn't just used for medicine type stuff, though. Uh, at her birthday party, they had uh, one of the machines on display and were just taking x-rays of the kids for fun. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah, like, look at you. You're a skeleton kid. Yeah. Best birthday party ever. <laughs> uh, and x-rays were seen as safe. Uh, they were like, it's as safe as any other type of light. Mm-hmm. Which I'm kind of like, I don't know. We can all get sunburned. So I don't know how safe all light is, but okay. <laughs> but they're like, oh, it's safe. It's fine. We've only known about it for like a month, but it's safe. No one's complained yet. <laughs> Uh, and then when effects of 
the radiation from x-rays started to take place, uh, it was often blamed on other things. It ultraviolet rays or uh, the ozone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not x-rays. They were fine. We don't even know what to call them. How can they be bad? Exactly. Uh, so John Edwards uh, Hill, or no, John Hill Edwards, who we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, who was the first one who took an X-ray in like a, you know, surgical setting, mm-hmm. would develop uh, what they called at the time X-ray dermatitis. It's cancer. He got cancer, uh, and by 1904, it had advanced significantly, and uh, he was writing papers and giving public addresses on the damages of X-rays. Uh, by 1908, he lost his left arm and four fingers off his right hand, and then soon after died. Um, his left hand is held at the Birmingham University Museum as a specimen on the effects of radiation. Don't know <laughs> if it's on public view, but maybe. <laughs> you wish. If you're in Birmingham, go check it out. Let me know. Uh, so uh, Thomas Edison, of course, was like, gonna get my hands in these x-rays. Maybe not too literally after that last example. Well, yeah, it, it was a, it was before that was happening. Sure. He didn't okay, know. Okay. Uh, so as soon as stuff, you know, the announcement came out, he started research on it as well. I mean, yeah, he he never met another person's invention he couldn't sell. Yeah. So that there you go. Yeah, and by May 1896, he had developed the first mass-produced live Im- imaging device called the vitascope, or later called the fluoroscope. Vitascope is such a good name. Yeah. It's such an 1890s name, yes. too. Yes, and he, the scope, scope is very mm-hmm. then. So Edison completely dropped x-ray research, however, uh, in 1903, as one of his main workers and helpers on experimenting with x-rays, uh, Clarence Madison Daly, uh, developed cancer. Uh, Daly was a glass blower at the Edison Lamp Works, and in 1890, he moved to the Edison Laboratory to assist in experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and his brother Charles worked on the development of Edison's X-ray focus tubes and the development of the fluoroscope, which um, they found out if they used calcium calcium tungsten, uh, this would produce sharper images. So by 1900. Dally was suffering from radiation damage to his hands and face that left him unable to work. Mm. Uh, his he- left hand was often what he used to test the the beam to see if it was working. Mm-hmm. And that led to him having multiple skin grafts uh, that eventually le- led to him having his left hand amputated and then several fingers on his right hand that did not stop the carcinoma and he uh, had to have both of his arms further amputated. And so in 1903, Edison was like, oh no, we're not going to be a part of this anymore. I'm getting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dally died in 1904. Mm. Uh, he is thought to be the first like officially known death from X-ray radiation. Poor guy. Yeah. Of all, of all the firsts to be known for. Yeah. Many would go very quickly after. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. But first to know. Um, It's also said that he was the one at that World's Fair with the x-ray having it on display. The the World's Fair where uh, the president was shot. Yes. 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 I don't look too much into it, but apparently. (laughs) Uh, Someone else who who got in on the x-ray 
excitement mm-hmm. uh, was Marie Curie. She has a big old larger-than-life statue at the uh, Surgical Science Museum. She does. In the Hall of Immortals. Yes. I think it's her plaque just talks about her work with radium. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we're going to talk about right now. No. Because in 1914, she would actually put her radium experiments on hold. Mm-hmm. German troops were heading towards Paris, and she was like, okay, this ain't good. I'm gonna <laughs> collect all my radium, put it in a lead box, send it on a train about 400 miles from here, and put it in a safety deposit box. Mm-hmm. And now... I'm going to focus my efforts somewhere else. And that is on creating the first radiological cars. Uh-huh. Uh, she invented a car with an x-ray machine inside that could drive right up to the battlefield or wherever any surgeon was and take x-rays of wounded soldiers. Oh. So she first approached the Union of Women of France, uh, which is honestly a terrible title for a group <laughs> of people. I, I assume they were all French women. Union of Women of France. Mm-hmm. It might sound better in the original French. I hope so, because that's just not, it just sounds off. Like rhythmically. Yeah. Yeah. But through them, she got the funding for the first car. She originally tried to approach the military, but they were just dragging their feet. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know what? I can make this happen faster. Uh, so after getting the funding for the first car, she then approached other wealthy Parisian women to donate more money and got a fleet of up to 20. Uh, And she also incorporated an electrical generator into the design so the car's engine could run the x-rays, which was fancy. You need it. Yeah. You need some of that electricity in there. Uh, She also trained uh, other women to volunteer to use the x-ray machines on the field. Uh, she started with 20, one person for each car. Sensible. Then uh, by the end, she had trained over 150 different people to use it. So they're clown cars. <laughs> Volunteers spilling out the sides. I think it's more like they tag team it. Shifts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. You know. That makes sense. Um, she herself actually often went out into the field with it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she also oversaw the construction of uh, 200 radiology like rooms in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's usually said that like you know she died from her work with radium. Yeah. Uh, she herself, however, uh, apparently did not think that that is what her illness was coming from. Apparently, she was suspicious that it was from uh, her work with X-rays during the war. Uh huh. And many of the other women who volunteered to run those x-ray cars uh, experienced a large amount of radiation effects afterwards. Because they knew by this time in 1914 that there are risks, but they didn't have the time to deal with them. Right, right. This is going to be kind of a technical question, so I don't know if like it came up in your your Mm -hmm. history-focused research. Yeah. But were these x-rays more dangerous because like the photo plates weren't as sensitive and that's why they had to be on for like 25 minutes in the case of the first dental x-ray just shining in your face or so so yeah a big thing with uh how x-rays used to work is that the exposure time was insane Mm -hmm. um the 25 minutes is actually very small 
there are accounts of oh, people getting like teeth. They're little bones. They're they're, they're the little ones. There there are accounts of people like sitting for hours mm-hmm. for an X-ray. Part of it was based on the development of the materials. So what they were originally using took longer for the exposure. Mm-hmm. I forgot when it was. I don't think I actually put it in my notes. But there was at one point where there was a new discovery that cut the exposure time to like a quarter of what it was. Mm -hmm. Edison's cut the time down, but then it was even more later on. Right. So that's why they had to sit longer. Later on, we were actually going to talk about it, but about a hundred years after the discovery, um, a medical physicist named Garrett Kemmerink uh, in the Netherlands discovered a X-ray machine from the 1890s that was very similar to the original design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he took some images with it and did some tests. And what he found out was that the amount of radiation that like taking a hand X-ray would receive was 1500 times greater than today's dosage uh-huh so the reason and this was over it took 90 minutes instead of like the 20 milliseconds that it takes nowadays mm-hmm. but 1500 times so that is why everyone was getting sick and dying yeah yeah i mean it's because the radiation amount that it was discharging was insane I mean, I'm comparing, yeah, all these stories of people uh, uh, having their lives drastically shortened and their quality of life reduced as they're, you know, amputating one finger at a time over the years compared to, like, the the helpful, handy notice that our dentist has to have on the wall saying that, yes, uh, your x-ray has radiation, but it's slightly more than eating a banana. Yeah. And significantly less than uh, taking a commercial flight from here to Boston. Yes. Or the scanner you have to walk through to get on the plane for that commercial flight. Yes. Um, So uh, a a dental x-ray is considered to have uh, one day of environmental background radiation. Mm -hmm. That's that's what it is. Um, a chest x-ray nowadays is like 10 days worth of background radiation. The the average radiation yes. you will meet in your day-to-day life. Yes. Assuming you don't live in a home with a radon-filled basement. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So like think about that. And if we're saying it's 1,500 times, that's... Mm-hmm. And they're leaving it on for 90 minutes instead of a slight fraction of a second. Yes. Yeah. One thing I, I guess I just never realized, because CT scans have never been something I've ever had to do, but those are apparently, you get a really crazy amount of radiation still. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you're going to be concerned about any medical treatment of radiation, it's probably a CT scan. I mean, it's still probably going to be worth it because of why they're doing it to, like, <laughs> save your life. Nowadays, the type of stuff, like, if you're doing x-rays, CT scans, whatever, the the chance of it increasing your risk of cancer is very incredibly minimal. Mm-hmm. It's something like 0. 0.5 to 3% compared to 1,500 times greater. <laughs> compared to almost certain in, in those Wild West days. You're going to be screwed yeah. if you did it then. And and these were, you know, things that they were were figuring out. They they quickly were coming to terms. I talked about that one guy who then was writing papers within, what, 10 years of mm-hmm. it coming out. But that didn't necessarily stop people. Mm-hmm. They might have created some different devices and experiments 
to try to shield from the radiation, but it didn't stop research. Uh, in 1926, the New York Times reported on the 72nd operation of um, a physician whose x-ray research had already cost him almost all his fingers and an eye. And uh, they said, despite the suffering he has undergone in the interest of science, he plans to continue his work as long as he lives, fingers or no fingers. Well, you can't fault him for his dedication. Yeah. And with that, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're we're gonna continue down this memory lane. You remember 1895? No, but we are gonna talk about something we saw at the Surgical Science Museum. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that is the X-ray shoe machines. <laughs> I know what's on the inside of a shoe. Do you? Yeah, don't smell them. <laughs> Uh, so when we were at the Surgical Science Museum, they did have one of these machines, and it was amazing. <laughs> uh, it is a wooden podium uh, that contained a fluoroscope. So it was like a wooden or metal cabinet, uh, and at the bottom was an x-ray tube, um, and ideally there was a lead-shielded base, mm-hmm. but who knows if those were always there. Uh, and a customer would like step up and place their feet in it, uh, in the hole. And then the clerk would turn it on and people could like view the x-ray through two or three eye holes. Mm-hmm. Uh, now these started to show up in shoe stores in the 1920s. Think about that. We know, oh man, x-rays, kind of dangerous. Radiation, not that great. Let's put these in shoe stores. The the possibilities of x-rays still must have seemed really limitless, like a really exciting technology. Yes. Because it's seeing the invisible out of nowhere. And that's just such a a poetic thing that that's something that that has got to grab people. Yes. I mean, it seems like magic. Like, like there is no scientific basis for Superman's x-ray vision. No. But he's got it. Yeah. And we keep giving that ability to fictional characters. Like, like we just watched a, a season eight X-Files episode. Yes. And someone had it. Where someone has eyesight so good they can see through walls. Yes. I mean, yeah, you have to really put yourself in their shoes uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh. Uh, and think about, like, it's never been seen before. Mm-hmm. This This is new. This has only been around for 25 years. And as easy as it is to to just make fun of these old-timey people, I would bet that both the, the sales clerk and the people buying shoes know that it's a whole lot better just to walk 20 feet in those shoes to see how well they fit. But it's just fun to look at the x-ray. It's so cool. <laughs> That's what gets you in the store in the first place. This is true. Yeah. Well, and... These machines were made with lead shields. So Mm -hmm. the idea was that it would be protecting. Right. It's just that a lot of times they found that these lead shields were like 
not made properly or they were removed because it made the <laughs> machines too heavy. Ah, there you go. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, in Milwaukee, uh, a man by the name of Clarence Carrer uh, claimed that he invented the machine. But then a dude in Boston named Jacob Lowe said he invented it. Uh, multiple companies existed that made these machines. Uh, and they were sold directly to shoe stores for apparently $2,000, which is a heck of a lot of money at that time. Yeah. Um, that better move a lot of traffic. They did. Okay. Um, they also didn't give, like, any instructions on how to use them. They're just <laughs> like, here's this machine that could kill you. Turn it on. The end. Um, at its peak, there were 10,000 machines in the U.S., uh, 3,000 in the U.K., and 1,000 in Canada. Customers would most likely have multiple exposures in a short amount of time because you're trying on different types of shoes. Yeah. And you wanted to see how they fit your feet. Uh, and also, it's cool. So let's go step in the thing again. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, often shoe stores would alter these machines. Um, and clerks, you know, were operating around them. They were turning them on. They were putting their hands in to adjust customers' feet. They were testing it on themselves to show people how it worked. And like, no, it's yeah. harmless. It's really cool. Uh, in 1949, the American College of Radiology published uh, that it was a potential hazard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and in 1953, it was advised that children should not use it. And then later, it was suggested that it should just be used for medical purposes. <laughs> but still, uh, many brushed off those worries. Uh, it was said that the shoe-fitting fluoroscope is not an instrument with obvious hazardous potentials. It has long been used and no direct clinical evidence of harm has yet been established. Uh, in 1957, the first state banned the use of the machine, and they were still in operation However, uh, for years, because in 1970, only 33 states had banned it. The rest just had, like, regulations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, foot cancer was starting to appear a lot in older patients. Mm -hmm. The Wisconsin Medical Journal uh, had a report on basal cell carcinoma of the soul with possible connection to shoe fitting machines. Uh, this type of carcinoma is very rare, and uh, they were working with an 80-year-old woman who was evaluated in 2004. Mm -hmm. um, she had this type of carcinoma, and for over 50 years, she and her husband owned a small independent shoe store, and they had one of these shoe machines for seven years there. Mm -hmm. um, so they believe that that is why she had this very specific centralized cancer i mean that that makes sense you know, it, you know it, it's not the the first patients who got it in in the 1890s it's the scientists and doctors running those tests and calibrating their machines it's you know the edison employee it's the so shoe now, worker yeah it's the shoe store employee not not the shoe customer yeah who is continuously showing people how to use it and standing by it and mm -hmm. testing it on her own foot etc there is a video I found from the Surgeon General. It's like a reel that's on personal hygiene and it promotes the use of the machine for like making sure your shoes fit right. Just walk in them. Uh, so we're going to post that link because it's like 
weird. <laughs> like, they're like, yes, this is how it should be. Like, your toe shouldn't be crushed. I'm like, you should be able to tell. This doesn't seem like a problem that needed fixing. <laughs> Unless Such you can't, like, fixing. feel your feet. Yeah. You don't need an x-ray to know how your shoes fit. Uh, so over the years, x-rays would be used as a medical cure for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. One of uh, the biggest uses was to cure ringworm. Mm. Uh, ringworm is an extremely common fungal infection. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know it was a fungal infection until I looked this up. Yeah. I didn't know it was the fungal. It's fungus. Because that's such a weird name. It's a fungus. I'm going to think it's a worm. Worm fungus. Um, it is treatable by antifungal creams and ointments and whatnot now. That's how you know but it's a fungus. before that existed, um, options usually involved toxic chemicals like carbolic acid and sulfur, which would burn away the fungus and, you know, your skin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as I said, it was very common. Right. Um, you know, if you were an immigrant and you had ringworm, you were going to be bunched in and seen as undesirable and defective and you were not going to be allowed in. Yeah. This was happening and, like, a really big risk mm -hmm. and worry. Using x-rays uh, and radiation became basically a game changer for fighting ringworm. It was still an intense process, but it had a higher uh, cure rate and was cheap and seen as less painful than burning your skin away well yeah you just shine a weird invisible light on on the spot well there's more to it okay so they would cut your hair and then they would administer several consecutive rounds of radiation to the scalp uh, assuming that's where your ringworm was Tip typically it was like face and and, okay. and scalp okay and then they would put like hot hot wax on your head Mm -hmm. And take it off immediately after it hardened. And then you would wear a sterile cap for about three weeks. That still seems like it would be less painful than carbolic acid. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so even with growing concerns in the 50s, it was still the mainstream treatment. And countries were treating tens of thousands of children this way. Countries would have like huge treatment facilities. Um, mm hmm for example, Yugoslavia had um, a huge eradication program with 24 treatment centers around the country. 50,000 children from 1950 to 1959 were treated. Uh, and it's estimated that several hundred thousand children uh, were exposed across the world to x-rays for fungal infections. Now, in 1959, a new pharmaceutical came out that treated it and they stopped using it. Mm -hmm. Which is great. But in the 60s and 70s, um, thousands of people who got treatment as a child started to present cancers localized in the head and neck. Oh. Because radiation. Uh, and those weren't the only things. Uh, the Department of Defense was treating thousands of U.S. servicemen and children through the 40s and 50s with radiation for inner ear and sinus problems. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 20s and 30s... Um, Radium was being injected into hundreds of patients for treatment of pain and ailments. Uh, X-rays were used to treat asthma, enlarged tonsils, acne. In the 40s and 50s, women were exposed to radium to treat uh, heavy periods. 
Uh-huh. Uh, and doctors were often trying to teach or uh, trying to treat radiation burns with more radiation by giving them like radium ointment. Oh, maybe, maybe uh, Marie Curie should have kept that safety deposit box closed a little tighter. I don't yeah. know. Like, anytime people are like, oh, the whole reason that, like, we have so much stuff going on nowadays and, like, there's all these cancers and stuff. And we didn't have that back when because of <laughs> what's in the food. I'm like, maybe it's other things. <laughs> I think there's a lot of things we've done over the past hundred years. To be concerned about. Not not only being able to see the invisible, but like uh, the, the ability to affect things at a distance without like touching them. Yeah. Must have seemed like such a revelation. What is such a revelation yes. in medical treatment? Like you can see where they were coming from. Yes. I, I wish safety would have kept pace. Yeah. Well, and there's, you know, like... Like with tuberculosis, when mm-hmm. x-rays came out, is the first time they could actually see what lungs looked like in TB patients. Yeah. It was a game changer. Yeah. It, they, they knew what it actually looked like. It gave them an idea of like how far it had progressed. Mm-hmm. X-rays are amazing. Uh, um, it's just... As a medical diagnostic tool, as, yeah. as a way to plan an upcoming surgery, see what's going on in there and, and mm-hmm. set your route. Yes. Yeah. And, you know... Radiation, we use it to cure certain types of cancers. Mm-hmm. It can also cause them if not used properly and done yeah. the right way, but it can cure things. We are going to talk about the dude who, like, tried to use it maybe for the first time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so one of the first Americans uh, to test using X-ray radiation to treat cancer was a Chicago chemist. Uh, an homeopathic physician named Emil Grubel. So he was wrong and bad. He's the bad kind of Cause, doctor. Because he was a homeopathic physician? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so in 1896, uh, he was tinkering with a lot of, you know, gadgets. That's mm-hmm. what he did. New stuff came out. It seemed like everyone back then was like, great, going to build my own thing. Well, yeah, you, you couldn't exactly write the, the Sears Roebuck catalog for your own fluoroscope. Yeah. Uh, so when accounts of the x-ray came out, uh, the article had a precise drawing of the apparatus, and he happened to have all the things needed. Mm-hmm. So he made one. Uh, and every day for two weeks, he took x-rays of his left hand, uh, which, as you can guess by now, he developed severe burns. Uh, And then was showing it off to his colleagues in January. Like, guys, look. Look at it. Look Look what I did. Look what I did. Uh, And one of them said that any physical agent capable of doing uh, so much damage to normal cells and tissue might offer possibilities if used as a therapeutic agent. Which makes sense. It does. If it hurts the bad, if it hurts the good stuff, why not try using it to hurt the bad stuff? Yeah. Yeah. And he was inspired by Mm -hmm. this. Um, so the, the first patient that is said to, uh, have received radiation treatment was Rose Lee. She was a 55 year old woman who, uh, had already had a radical mastectomy and, uh, she now had a tumor developing, um, on her chest wall. Mm -hmm. At this point, she was going to have a really painful, horrible death. There, there was no other option, Mm -hmm. like nothing else. So she agreed to 
try the one last thing there was left to try. So on January 28th, uh, they started treatment. Um, he put up lead sheets um, to shield the rest of her chest. So he did one thing right. Uh, <laughs> and put the uh, tubes three inches uh, above the tumor. Rays were administered for an hour. Uh, and this was repeated several times over seven days. She still died like the following month from the cancer. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't do it, but it's the first thought or thought to be the first time that radiation was used. Mm -hmm. Now this dude though. Yeah. He didn't publish any accounts um, uh, and didn't like make claims for credits until the 1900s. And he said he didn't do it because he wasn't yet a doctor. He still had two years left of his program before he graduated and didn't want to, like, get in trouble. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other people contested his claims and say that they deserve the credit. <laughs> Apparently, the death certificate for Rose was never found, but FBI analysis of um, his patient files that he, like, found in the 30s do say that they were written... Uh, at the turn of the 19th century. Okay. Now, he went on to become a very successful uh, businessman across Chicago, uh, apparently having lots of x-ray clinics. Mm -hmm. And he experienced exposure issues, um, apparently had about 100 surgeries and multiple amputations. Uh, when he died, he gave his fortune and medical library to the University of Chicago, or with the stipulation that someone had to write his biography. <laughs> so the chairman of the radiological department did, but he learned that he really hated the dude. <laughs> and he said, if you're going to be fool enough to leave your money to have your biography written, then try to lead an exemplary life. Failing that, for God's sake, remember to tell your lawyers to stipulate that it be a positive biography. <laughs> you know what? I'm not going to follow that advice. <laughs> I would rather roll the dice and at least have an interesting story one way or the other come out. Uh, so do you remember those early x-rays we saw at the Surgical Science Museum? I, I do. Th this museum is built into what was originally an old house. Yes. So it's it's small rooms and small hallways connecting them. And one of, of these uh, hallways is just like both walls and the ceiling covered in very early looking x-ray exposures. Yeah. Those are his. Ah. Yeah. He uh, took those. If I recall, uh, Grubble is also credited with inventing uh, uh, lead shielding. Which makes sense since he uh, was like, I'm going to put up these lead shields on this woman. Yeah, like he, he came up with a lead foil to cover once he saw that the x-ray was damaging part of his hand. Yeah, it's too he, bad he didn't do it earlier because... He, he came up with a lead shield to cover the, the healthy skin on his hand and just continue studying that spot because, you know, why not? In for a penny, in for a pound, I guess. Might be why he had 100 <laughs> surgeries. Uh, so what happened to uh, the man who started this all? Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Ronkin? Yes. Ronchin? I'm not sure myself. Uh, he and his wife uh, stayed married until 1919 when she passed away. Hmm. Uh, he never tried to patent any of his discoveries because he felt that that was ethically wrong and that anything that he discovered for science should be available to all. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in 1901 and donated about forty thousand dollars in prize money to the University of uh, University of Wurzburg. Pretty good for a high school dropout. Yep. And in 1923, um, he died from carcinoma of the intestines. And in his will, he requested that all of his personal and scientific correspondence be destroyed. And they were. Um, Because of that, it means some of the stories about his discoveries and his work are conflicting. Mm -hmm. Because his lab notes were burned. Hmm. Do you know why he he wanted that done to to his his records? I didn't find anything specific, but what? my thought is this cuz it seems like so much of what he did was that he didn't want all this credit. Mhm. And my thought is that maybe he wanted it all destroyed so people wouldn't pour over it to write biographies <laughs> and everything. It's like no focus on the science, the work. Maybe there was something nasty in there. Or maybe he was a really terrible person, mm. and we don't know. M- maybe he uh, saw something from beyond the veil. Who knows? Yeah, have, give yourself a raunchin-themed uh, Call of Cthulhu campaign. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, darling, what have you learned? I think it's interesting that one of the uh, early X-ray pioneers was a homeopathist. Was homeopathic. Oh, for for our, our boy uh, Grubble. Grubble, yeah, because it because radiation kind of is maybe the the only case that comes to mind of like curing like. Yeah. <laughs> Although you don't dilute it, that doesn't work. That's that's nothing. <laughs> homeopathic dilution is is nothing. It's. But at least as far as, you know, the, the cause of a, a cancer can also be a treatment for a cancer. They, they got that one right for once. Well, one of the things I was reading about him also said that, speculated that one of the reasons he might not have come forward, if it's true that he did all the things he did, mm-hmm. uh, was because he was a homeopathic doctor. And, that he, <laughs> and it's he, very much not a homeopathic cure. Well, and no more like... He was just going to be ridiculed and questioned, uh, okay. <laughs> and that no one was going to like trust him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even back then they knew. <laughs> Shades of like the early days of X-rays remind me of you know a point I made about electricity in our recent uh, episode on spiritualism. Uh-huh. When there's something that clearly does a thing, but the how is so unclear. It can just spread like wildfire through through the populace. Yeah. Then it's it's how everybody is doing their shoe sizes. Well, if it would have had more time, I definitely would have looked into some of the like X-ray occultist. Yeah, I'm sure they're tele- out there. I'm certain. Telepathy, everything. Yeah. Craziness. But I ran out of time. <laughs> well, may- maybe I'll pick up the slack. Thing. <laughs> it's going more into my territory. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just went with the death. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also incredible how, like, how how very, very safe radiology and, and x-ray imaging are today because of the development of this. But at the same time, it, it's married to people who, because of this very real history, like, it, it's bound up in their mind with death and pain and danger mm-hmm. when, relatively speaking, like... The anesthesia you get 
at the dentist is more dangerous than the x-ray you get at the dentist. Yes. And that is perfectly safe, too. Just just to assuage people. Yes. I just need a lot of it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm weird. I'm sorry about your weird uh, anesthesia metabolism, dear. Yep. Yeah. Gotta give me, like, five times the dose. Yeah, my, my goal wasn't to, like, scare people away from x-rays. That was not the goal of this. That's why I did try to find, like, yeah. some, like, comparisons. Any time travelers who are listening, you can be scared of x-rays. If someone back in... On, on your next trip to before 1950. Yeah, if they're like, oh, you broke your arm, let's take an x-ray, be like, no. Oh, I mean, can you just sort of feel it? <laughs> <laughs> let's just assume it's broken. <laughs> I guess with that, we'll uh, take a quick break and be back with letters. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Hello. Before we leave you on, on this lovely Thanksgiving week, uh, we've got some letters to read. Yep. And our first one comes in from Ramona. Our prompt going into this episode was, you wanted to hear about people's favorite thing from the 90s mm -hmm. to commemorate our episode number 90. I did not specify what 90s. <laughs> I just said 90s. And Ramona takes you up on that, giving two responses. Uh, their favorite thing from the 1990s is their best friend, who's born in 95. Oh, my God. <laughs> And their favorite thing from the 1890s, those gay 90s, is Peter Kropotkin's essays, like The Conquest of Bread. I like bread. I like conquest. <laughs> Not really. Um, no. Uh, but this letter is also full of some, some very uh, kind words, some, some, very, uh, um, some very thoughtful feedback about our, our tone and our, our uh, choice of focus in our topics. And I, I really enjoyed reading that. Thank you very much, Ramona. Thank you. James writes in and answers our prompt of favorite thing from the 90s. And mm -hmm. aside from people, because they got a lot of friends that are 90s kids. Uh, they Like you don't. You totally do. <laughs> I do. I didn't say anything about that. Okay. I got friends that are 90s kids. It still makes me go, ooh, when I hear <laughs> when they were born. <laughs> There's a very nice girl I work with that when she talks about when she was in high school, I kind of want to puke. Okay? Uh, but James uh, shares that their favorite thing from the 90s is the album New Miserable Experience by the Gin Blossoms. Which is mostly known for the hit Hey Jealousy. And let me just say, James, I love the Gin Blossoms. Yeah. We trekked. <laughs> <laughs> to freaking Jefferson Park. Jefferson, it's not even a real park. No, it's one of the farthest out like neighborhoods of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Purposefully inaccessible by by a uh, train. To see them play a street festival, and it took forever to get there. It took even longer to get home. Yes, it was bad. It was still great to see them though. <laughs> I enjoyed myself when they played Hey Jealousy. I, it's nice to know that other people like the Gin Blossoms other than me. <laughs> I appreciate you know, this. It, it might not be that bad. But the cops just so bad. <laughs> Thanks, James. Yep. 
Kevin has been uh, giving a re-listen through the backlog. My goodness. Thanks, Kevin. But that means some uh, a return of some older prompts, uh, like favorite feature idea. Kevin's been thinking a lot about teleportation lately for, for convenience, for space savings. I mean, just imagine if we didn't need parking lots and, oh. and how that land could be put to use. Parks. Lots of parks. Imagine if we didn't have to, you know, burn diesel fuel in this massive fleet of uh, uh, trucks and whatnot. Yeah. Whoa. Kevin's favorite movie based on historical events, if we want to stretch things, would be The Warriors, a uh, 1970s gang movie, uh, but based on uh, the Anabasis, a Greek story from around 400 BCE about an army of mercenaries making their way home through hostile territory, one fight at a time. Mm. Which is, you know, basically how the movie goes, except instead of going to Greece, they're going to Coney Island. Yeah. Yeah. The last book Kevin read was the uh, Caiaphas Kane Omnibus, a collection of uh, short stories and novellas set in the Warhammer 40k setting, uh, grim, dark future, etc. The, the character of Cain is, is this guy re- regarded as this legendary hero who, who has survived so many battles where all others perished. But uh, the, the dramatic irony comes from the fact that in those battles, he just runs and hides. Nice. That's why everybody else dies. But back to the present, uh, Kevin's favorite thing uh, from the 90s is the wave of things inspired by the ne- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The turtles themselves are 80s babies, but without them, we would not have had Battletoads, the Street Sharks, Biker Men, Biker Mice from Mars, Cheetah Men, and so many others. So many men. All of the men's. Yeah. And of course, without the Street Sharks, we wouldn't have that video of Vin Diesel demoing Street Sharks toys, which is perfect in every way. Yes. You you might even say Jawsome. Uh, Final Gamer writes in, and uh, their favorite thing from the 90s was the Animals of Farthing Wood TV series that aired on the BBC from 93 to 96, uh, based on the novels by Colin Dan. It is about a group of animals who, after their homes are destroyed by humans, make a perilous journey towards a sanctuary park. And it is very uh, blunt about portraying death, both in the wild and that caused by humans. It sounds an awful lot like Once Upon a Forest. Yeah. Which traumatized me as a child and was definitely about animals losing their home and having to go on a journey <laughs> that was very blunt about death. Yeah, there, there are some parallels there. I, it, It's not exactly a one-of-a-kind plot either, but yeah. So traumatized. <laughs> like, I feel like I, I sometimes wake from, like, a nightmare of remembering that movie. That also came out in 1993 and was a British-American, like, co-production. That's so weird. Is this a Bugs Life Ant situation? Totally. Okay. Definitely is. <laughs> but thank you, Final Gamer. Thanks. Claritic writes in, with the one answer I was expecting to see a lot more of. Yeah. Her favorite thing from the 90s is the Pokemon franchise. Oh. But not content to just say a thing. No, no, no. Claritic has to teach us a lesson, which is why I always enjoy her letters. See, uh, just about any piece of software you can think of has a a bit of code in it that tells it what to do if it doesn't know what to do. Mm Mm-hmm. 
right? Like your, your classic Windows operating system, if it locks up, it knows to go to a blue screen and, and, and restart. Yes. Pokemon, though, doesn't do that. Uh, the, the original, like Pokemon Red and Pokemon Blue, that is. They're, they tried to fit so much on those game cartridges, there wasn't room to put in something like that. Oh. Which means that if, if it uh, finds some sort of catastrophic failure, it will just go on trying to do something with whatever code it manages to, to grab, no matter how weird that is. Yeah. What that means is people have figured out how, how to game that system, so to speak, to, to do fantastic uh, uh, glitch runs and, and make strange and impossible things happen with these games. But it also means if you don't know what you're doing going into those you can wind up destroying your game, actually destroying the physical cartridge oh. and making it unplayable. Oh. So be gentle with your Pokemon, folks. Thanks, Claritic. Uh, Samantha writes in, and Samantha is a new listener, uh, mostly new listener to the podcast. Mostly. Hi, Samantha. Uh, found us through another podcast, possibly Sunday School Dropouts. Yay! Uh, and has binged our entire catalog in two months. Ooh. Uh, and is apparently my kindred spirit. Aww. Samantha's favorite piece of public art is Blucifer, uh, yeah. officially named the Blue Mustang, but better known as Blucifer, or the demon horse in front of the Denver International Airport. Mm-hmm. It's the one thing that makes me want to fly there. Yeah. The the second thing is all the murals that people think are Illuminati uh, uh conspiracy signs nice yeah yeah uh samantha's favorite thing from the 90s is the nanny uh <laughs> her and her sister couldn't agree on most tv shows to watch growing up but the two things they could consistently watch together were golden girls and the nanny nice yes i used to watch a lot of the nanny yeah yeah if you watch enough of the nanny you will achieve class consciousness i can't stand it now <laughs> but i used to enjoy it yeah uh, and Samantha shares uh, a p- pictures of Luna, a uh, three-year-old rescue pup who loves the couch more than most things and only has about half of her teeth. Uh, so her tongue sticks out a lot, Aww. which is cute. Those are adorable pictures. Luna is a very good girl. Yeah. And thank you, Samantha, for writing, and thank everybody for writing in. Uh, if you would like to send us a letter, uh, where can those go, dear? Those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we want to hear any sort of feedback you got, your, your corrections, your questions, your uh, uh, stories, and also, of course, the, the responses to our usual prompts. Darling, what is our prompt? For our next episode, uh, I want to hear everybody's favorite revolution. Ooh. I might have uh, done that one before, but I don't care. I know what mine is. If, if I did it, give me your second favorite revolution then. So there, neener, neener. Oh. Uh, and those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. While you're out there, uh, you can also uh, give us a, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or, or any other podcatcher that, that uh, helps connect us to you. We really do appreciate it. You can also tell a friend. Tell those friends. It is Thanksgiving times mm-hmm. if you are here in America. It's just the end of November if you're elsewhere. <laughs> um, I don't care who you are. It's the end of November. <laughs> 
Uh, but if you happen to be seeing your your family in the next few days, tell them about our show. Tell them about how you learned about a lot of people uh, giving themselves radiation poisoning. If you have a friend who's looking for a way to kill time on a long drive or flight or, or anything like that, we can help you out. We can. We have some more uplifting topics as well. You yeah. know, just let them know. Mm-hmm. But you can also keep in touch with us on social media. That is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. At History Honeys. Which, speaking of, uh, I posted some pictures on our Instagram of our visit to the Surgical Science Museum. Mm -hmm. Which does include some of the things we talked about in this episode. Yeah. If you're in Chicago and uh, are free on a Tuesday, I would recommend going to the International Museum of Surgical Science. It's really nice. It is free on Tuesdays to Illinois residents. That is the point of that. Yes. It is open seven days a week. It's nice seven days a week for everyone, but it's free to Illinois residents Tuesdays. Yes. Yeah. Since it is Thanksgiving, my my heart is warm and full, uh, and I'd like to thank everybody for for joining us. Uh, This is just a a fun little project that the two of us do, but it fills up a lot of our week, it feels like. Sometimes more than others. (laughs) But I I wouldn't have it any other way. I I love uh, having the excuse to teach myself things so I can teach them to you. Yeah. And I, I love the uh, feedback we get from from our passionate fans in uh, in in comments I see places in those uh, Apple Podcast reviews, and of course in in our letters and correspondence. I love every last bit of it. I like all those things too, but I think my favorite thing is having a random amount of knowledge that I just <laughs> drop at weird times at work, yeah. and people are like, "How do you know that?" Um. I just like history. Yeah. I had the awkward job of telling people why I went to the Surgical Science Museum on my day off. For fun. That's why they're like, why'd you, why, why'd you decide to do that? Because I like weird stuff. And then we went to the <laughs> zoo, and then we went to dinner. It was a wonderful day. It was. But yeah, thank you all so much for listening. We do appreciate it. We appreciate hearing from you. And uh, Sharon. Mm-hmm. So with that, I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your your honey. honey. And your puppy. Bye, puppy.